Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast with the listeners in more than 100 countries. My name is Hana Lee. I am president and founder of Hana Lee Communications, an award-winning global PR agency specialized in hospitality and travel. And I'm Michael Ann Stendig, editor-in-chief of Hana Lee Communications, an award-winning co-author of The Japanese Hour of the Cocktail, and a food and beverage writer. Helping the community has always been part of our agency's mission. We understand that a lot of business owners, bartenders, chefs, sommeliers, and others might not have the resources to hire a PR agency. So we created our podcast so that our listeners can get to know leading reporters and writers and start building relationships. Each week, our media guests from around the globe share their practical advice on how hospitality and travel professionals can be spotlighted in their stories. In fact, one of our loyal listeners got featured in the New York Times after listening to our podcast and following our media guests' tips. So, you could be next. Also, please send your favorite pitching tips from the episode to hello at hanaleecommunications.com for a chance to win a copy of our agency's book, The Japanese Art of the Cocktail. And now, moving on to the show. In this episode, we're delighted to chat with Susanna Skyver Barton, a freelance spirits journalist and whiskey expert. Susanna covers spirits industry trends, new products, and all things whiskey. Her bylines include Whiskey Advocate, Whiskey Magazine, Men's Health, Men's Journal, Imbibe, Punch, Fine Pair, and more. She's also currently working on a 12-part video series on the history of whiskey for Wondrium, set for release in 2024. Hi, Susanna. Welcome to the show. So great to see you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm delighted to participate. So first question off, you're known as a sensory evaluation expert. Can you explain to our listeners what that means and what it takes to achieve this title? Um, what it means is you can put a spirit, um, and probably a, a wine or beer too, but spirits is what I know. So that's what I usually stick with. Put it in front of me in a glass and, uh, I'm going to be able to nose it, taste it, hopefully identify it. Sometimes <laughs> if I'm trying to distinguish between bourbon and rye, I do get it wrong sometimes. I'm not ashamed to admit that, but I will most importantly be able to tell you what it smells like, what it tastes like, and its quality. And with that, you know, I'm able to assign it a rating if I'm doing an official scoring situation, or, you know, if not, just uh, give an opinion about it. Uh, the way to develop this skill is just to taste and taste and taste repeatedly. Um, I have spent well over a decade uh, tasting and assessing not only whiskeys, but all kinds of spirits. And I take those skills and I apply them to almost everything that I put in my mouth. So any drink, any food, um, I it's almost involuntary at this point uh, that I take a moment, give it a sniff, give it a little taste, think about what I'm tasting and apply my judgment to that. Um, but it's it's something anyone can do. You just have to do it in a, in a rigorous way and, and be committed to... Uh, you know, making it a discipline. 
Well, we understand that you started at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And of course, it's a country obviously known for producing some of the best whiskeys in the world. So was this the beginning of your passion for whiskey? Yes, it was. Yeah, I had been a very casual uh, whiskey drinker before that, sort of interested in it um, as something that seemed cool. But I wasn't really going out and, and drinking whiskey with any regularity. But when I moved to Scotland, which was for a master's degree in an unrelated discipline, um, I joined the University Whiskey Tasting Society. And that really opened a whole new world to me of uh, enjoyment and discovery. And that was, that was the beginning. Whiskey and writing are such a great combination. How did you parlay the two into your journalism path? So it started with the, uh, the year in Scotland and the discovery of whiskey. I had been doing this master's degree thinking I might go on for a PhD. And about halfway through the year, I realized that that was not the path I wanted to take. And I, I knew already that I really felt passionate about whiskey and enjoyed it. And I wanted to try to find a way to incorporate that into my career. Um, and I knew I was a writer. I had been working for a few years after college in grant writing and communications for a nonprofit. And so I kind of, even though that's not the kind of writing I do now, writing is writing. You're still doing that every day. It's a part of, it, it was a part of my, my professional life. Uh, so I said, how do I put these two together? And because it was the mid 2000s, I did what everybody did back then. And I started a blog. And, uh, and blogged about whiskey and about food. And one thing led to another. I started getting some freelance assignments uh, and eventually landed a full-time job at a wine and spirits trade magazine, which led me to Whiskey Advocate, which led me to being a full-time freelance writer today. So in your opinion, what makes a whiskey great? Most whiskey that gets put in a bottle these days tastes good. But but to, to hit the level of great, um, I don't, I'm not going to say anything about specific tasting notes because it could be any flavors. Um, I think it has to strike a balance um, across the board in, in the qualities and flavors that it displays. I think it has to be complex, um, the kind of whiskey that you can spend half an hour just nosing the glass before you even put it in your mouth and you don't feel like you're waiting for anything because just the act of inhaling is so richly satisfying. But then when you do taste it and you sip it and swallow it, it has to give you um, lots of points to grasp onto. Oh, I'm tasting this thing or I'm, I'm perceiving that. And, and it's got to stay with you, not only in a, a long finish, but just the, the, the feeling that the whiskey gives you has to, um, has to remain with you um, even after you've, you've finished it. I think a great whiskey is different for each person, but it is always personal. I mean, to me, it almost brings up a musical analogy of, you know, perhaps a symphony versus, you know, a plain song. It has to operate on a lot of different levels that complement and reinforce and resound in a in a glowing kind of way. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. Well, let's let's get down to brass tacks. 
When you're judging a whiskey, do you have a distinct set of criteria or, you know, boxes that you're checking off? Or is it the thing more subjective, like, you know, you know it when you taste it? Uh, I, a little of both. Certainly when I'm judging for a competition or for publication, I'm always working with a rubric. Uh, you know, looking, it, it could be as um, clear and broken down as we start with appearance and go on to finish. Appearance, aroma, palate, mouthfeel, finish, um, and assign a certain number of points for each of those things. Um, or it could be uh, the rubric is, okay, a whiskey that's 95 and above hits these factors, right? And then 90 to 94 is this or something like that. So, and, and it's sort of, it varies by competition or by publication. Some, you know, everyone's sort of got slight variations on, on how they want judges to score. If I'm just doing it for myself, I keep all those things in mind, but I'm not necessarily working through a grid and saying, okay, you get 15 points for the aroma and 75 points for the mouthfeel. Um, it's not always that explicit, but I'm certainly taking notes on each of those things so that in the end, when I reach my final score, I have a way of defending how I got there. So, um, you know, I always, I always want to have justification for my scores so that I can share that with someone if they ask or put it in the note if it's a, if it's a, a published note. We've been watching you in action of the years and when you are at, you know, Whiskey Advocates and also working, you know, for Market Watch magazine as a full-time staffer. You are always so kind whenever when I reach out to you on behalf of our clients. But also, we were super impressed by your knowledge and also how thoughtful you were sharing your notes, you know, tasting notes with our clients uh, at your office. So I always wanted to thank you for your kindness and thoughtfulness during that process. Oh, <laughs> but that, that actually raises an interesting question. You know, you, you had a very prominent role at both of those publications, and then you decided to strike out on your own as a freelancer. So what was it like to go from a full-time staffer to a freelance writer? It was very exciting. You know, the, there's there's a lot to be said for having a full-time job. And I I enjoyed what I did. I loved the people I worked with. And I certainly loved the what I got to write about. Um, but it was a lot of work that wasn't always the kind of work I was interested in. You know, when you're an editor, there are just a lot of, let's call them thankless tasks. Um, and someone has to do them. And I, every single day, I'm grateful to all the editors that I work with. Uh, for doing those things, because I've been in their shoes, and I know what it's like. Um, and I know that it can be a slog sometimes. That um, I've always loved writing the most, and being able to devote the majority of my time to that now has helped me feel more creative than I've ever felt before. I really feel free to pursue all kinds of ideas that might not have fit with the publications that I worked for before. And so I would have had to put them to the side um, because I just had to focus on what was most important to those specific magazines. Um, but now I just, you know, I kind of, it's, it's perfect for someone like me who's, I'm the kind of person who clicks through every link on Wikipedia because I'm so interested in what it is going to lead to. Um, I get to pull the thread, you know, and, and chase the rabbits down the holes and, and, and just see what tickles my fancy on a given day. And then hopefully find someone who wants me to write about it. 
So beyond the creative freedom of being a freelance writer and, you know, the ability to, you know, hunt down rabbit holes, what are what are some of the biggest challenges of being a freelance writer? Uh, managing the workload. Sometimes it's feast or famine. So if I, um, I, my deadlines are all kinds of deadlines. Sometimes I have a deadline that, that I, you know, I have to turn around in a week after getting the assignment. Other times I have a couple of months to work on a story and I'm pretty good at managing my own timelines. But, you know, if something falls in my lap, like a, a commissioned assignment from an editor and I don't, I don't want to turn it down. So I have to work that in to um, whatever's already on my plate, that can be a challenge. And certainly financially as a freelancer, because it's up or down, because some months, uh, you know, I might uh, be billing 10 assignments and other months it might be three, that, that can be tough. Um, and of course, not every accounts payable department is swift in <laughs> remitting payment to, the, to their freelancers. So Having to chase down payments is uh, a necessary part of the work, but you know, for the most part, these are these are small complaints. <laughs> Which publication do you now write for? Oh, all all sorts. So I stay firmly in the drinks world with publications like Vine Pair and Imbibe and Punch. Um, but one of the fun things about freelancing is that I've been able to expand into other like lifestyle publications. So I do a lot with Men's Journal, Men's Health. Inside Hook. Um, I know there are other ones I'm forgetting. I've had some bylines in the Daily Beast, Bon Appetit, um, stuff like that, you know, which is fun for me because um, it challenges me to, to write about my area of expertise in a way that's different from how I might write for, you know, a, a spirits nerd or someone who's in the trade. Can you give us some examples of how you translated perhaps some of your, you know, nerdier insights into something consumer friendly that people outside of our industry would relate to. Sure. Uh, men's health is, is one of the ones that I find I most often have to rework how I would approach the story if I were writing for a drinks publication because their audience is curious about cocktails perhaps, but not coming from the same space of sort of nerdy knowledge that um, someone who reads imbibe would. Uh, and so uh, if they ask me to write a story on the michelada uh, with a with a recipe, I sort of I have to do a little research. Who's got a good michelada recipe that's easy but creative and also speaks to some of the values of the reader of that publication? You know, they're looking for fresh things. They're looking for something a little healthier. Um, and, and how do I encapsulate that in 200 words? I mean, so you write for so many different publications, both trade and consumer. So can you walk us through your process from coming up with a story idea to pitching it to your editors? Yeah. So coming up with the idea is in a lot of ways the easy part. I have way more ideas than time to execute on them. And I keep a document that just has all my kernels of ideas. And, and when I have some downtime, I like to look at it and try to see which ones are still speaking to me and flesh them out and see if they're good enough for a story. So once I have an idea that I think is good enough for a story, I do some more research. I think about who I would talk to um, and come up with my potential source list. I think about how long the story would be. Is it the kind of story that fits better for 
trade or lifestyle? Is it the kind of story that would be good for print? You know, maybe it's something I can build out with little sidebars and lots of extras. Um, is it something that, you know, would be just kind of thinking through like, who does this story fit? You know, hopefully they say yes. They don't always say yes. I've gotten a lot of no's. But when I get a no's, then I look at the story again. And I say, can I send this same pitch to someone else? Or can I reshape it a little bit? Maybe change the angle or approach and, and pitch it elsewhere. So I try not to waste a pitch if I can help it. Are you usually assigned stories? Or are, you, are you usually pitching stories that you come up on your own? Or how does it break out? It's majority stories that I pitch. Um, I love getting story assignments because, you know, like I said, the idea is, well, the idea is the easiest part, but, but doing all the legwork to get to the pitch is a lot of work. I spend probably 50% of my time writing the pitch and then 50% of my time reporting the story. So when I get an assignment, you know, that cuts out 50% of my time already, but I would say 75 to 85% of what I write is my, my pitches. You recently wrote a very interesting article on how some of the world's biggest distilleries are launching micro distilleries to spur innovation. Is there anything else going on in the spirits world these days that our listeners should be keeping an eye on? Oh gosh, so much. Um, (laughs) I would say the momentum behind the low and no alcohol movement in the world of hospitality and cocktails is massive. You know, if you're not paying attention to that, regardless of what you think of it, or if you're interested in it, you should be keeping an eye on it. It's, it's influencing everything, even alcoholic beverages. Agree. We've seen tremendous movement that's happening within that category. So couldn't agree more. Um, in the upcoming months, um, what topics will you be writing about? It's, uh, it's hard to say. So I'm working on a long-term project right now for a, um, a 12-part video lecture series on the history of whiskey. And so that's uh, just a big picture topic. Um, that's covering everything from scotch to bourbon to Japanese and world whiskey and, and everything in between. Um, but that won't come to fruition. We won't see the result of that until next year. So as far as articles that I'm writing, um, it, you know, a lot of what I pitch and write is responsive to news or uh, things that, that happen um, in the spirits world. So, so you know, I'll, I'll catch a piece of news or an update from a brand and I'll say, oh yeah, you know, I, I think that could make it a, an interesting story if I talk to this person or that person. And then I come up with my pitch based on that. Um, so that's kind of hard to predict. But beyond that, uh, you know, there's stuff that's evergreen. I, I write a lot of listicles. I think every spirits writer does these days. Um, so things that are, you know, just like the, the best rums to try if you're, if you are a bourbon lover or something like that. Um, that's, I, that's not a, that's not something I'm actively writing, but now that I've sent it out, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good list. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, you're working on a video series and, um, I know it's coming out early next year. So congratulations. And given your expertise in visual storytelling, what would you tell people in our industry, like distillers and spirits brand owners or bartenders to do to increase their visibility on social media? Oh my gosh. Number one, 
pay for professional photos. I can't tell you the number of brands that I write about and ask them, hey, do you have some photos that we can run with the article? Maybe showing off your distillery or your product or yourself. And they don't have them. And I understand because it's, it can be a really expensive investment, but social media is so, so, so much about the image. And a lot of people just look at the pictures and don't read the captions. You know, I, I know this. And putting in that upfront investment to make yourself look good and to give people something that makes you memorable really pays dividends. Um, most of the publications that I write for don't have very big budgets for doing their own photography or their own art, and they rely on what brands can supply. And the brands that have the best photos are the ones whose photos run with the article. So that's my number one piece of advice. Just grit your teeth, hire a good photographer. Um, and if you don't know how to find one, look at other brands whose photos you like and say, who did you hire to do your photos? <laughs> and they'll tell you. Excellent advice. And we know a lot of our listeners are going to want to reach out to you to tell their stories. But pitching is intimidating for a lot of people, especially if they don't know a journalist like you. So how can our listeners become trusted sources of information for you? What should they keep in mind when they reach out? Well, if they are reaching out directly as the source, if they're a distiller or brand owner or a bartender, just tell me who you are, what you do. If you have a specific idea for a story like, hey, I think you should write about my bar because we're doing this really groundbreaking thing, you know, tell me what that thing is. You can keep it brief, but just give me an idea of it. Please don't tell me, give me a call to talk about it because I am not going to be motivated to call you if I don't know what we're going to talk about. Um, so just at least give me an idea to start and then we can move the conversation along. Um, if it's a, a publicist who's reaching out on behalf of their client, same advice, keep it short, give me a paragraph or two at most. And most importantly, tell me who you have available for me to talk to. So if you're pitching a specific story, I need to know who the source is going to be is who's your client. Don't say, oh, we'll connect you with someone from the brand team. Well, which person from the brand team? Because I have to tell my editor that. I can't just say, oh, I'm going to talk to somebody from the brand team. They'll say, well, who? <laughs> um, they need to know, is it going to be the distiller? Is it going to be the brand ambassador? Is it going to be the head of sales? That's really, really important. Is there anything that they shouldn't be doing? Um, don't send me DMs with a pitch. If you need to pitch me an idea, please email me. My email address is really easy to find on my website. There's also, you can send me a message through my website. That's fine. But don't pitch me over Twitter or Instagram because I don't, I don't check my messages that often. And also it's just much harder for me to keep track of. That's, I, that would be one of my biggest things. Probably the other one is please don't follow up too quickly. Um, if it's, if it's time sensitive, that's, and I haven't gotten back to you, that's fine. But you know, I get follow-ups sometimes within a day, sometimes within less than a day. Um, and that that's never, ever necessary. <laughs> you know, like I, I will, if I can tell you, you put in some effort to tailor a pitch specifically to me, like, I really appreciate that, even if it's not a fit. And if it's not tailored and I don't know who you are, like, I'm probably not going to get back to you because answering email is, is time that I'm not doing work I get paid for, you know, like it's, it's unpaid work for me. Um, and I get a lot of pitches, so I, I have to just be judicious. So let's take a, a bigger view at the industry. 
Uh, we call our podcast Hospitality Forward, as you well know. So what organization or person have you recently seen innovating and moving the hospitality industry forward? It's such a difficult question to answer because I think there are lots of people kind of engaged in the same sort of work um, that really matters. We talked about alcohol-free a few minutes ago, and I think every bar that's making a real effort to incorporate alcohol-free cocktails as a serious offering on their menu is absolutely moving hospitality forward. You know, a bar is not a place where you just go to get drunk. It's a place where you go to relax and enjoy yourself. Maybe you're alone, maybe you're in company. Um, But the more that a bar can do to welcome people to relax and enjoy themselves, regardless of if they're going to drink alcohol, um, I think the better it can be. People, you know, people who are choosing not to drink or can't drink still want to enjoy something that's crafted with care, you know, that's sophisticated, that that was prepared by someone who really put a lot of thought into this special experience in a glass. And there's way too many bars to talk about because lots of them are doing it now, but I commend them all. But I did, you know, there is one specific bar that I, I wanted to highlight. It's a little bar in Kagoshima, Japan that I, I visited a few months ago. And it's a small bar, probably 15 or 20 people tops. And the owner, um, she doesn't speak much English, but she makes non-Japanese speakers feel perfectly welcome. I had a really memorable evening there. And when after I visited, I found out she has some regulars who are deaf. And she learned Japanese sign language in order to be able to communicate with them. And when I found that, I just, that to me is the most that's where hospitality should aspire to go. That's that's a profound take on hospitality. Oh, how sweet. How sweet. Yeah. Well, thanks for um, sharing this story. And I'm sure our listeners who are traveling to Japan, I think they should go and experience it, and including us in the future. <laughs> Speaking of bar, what is your favorite drink? And if you choose one person, who would you share it with and why? Well, my favorite drink is whiskey. And if you ask me to name a specific one, I'm going to have a really hard time. But I will narrow it down to single malt scotch. And if I could share a scotch with anybody, it would be with my late friend, Peter, who passed away a couple of years ago, but was one of my most treasured scotch friends right we we met each other through whiskey and whenever we got together it was with great food and great whiskey always scotch he was a scotch drinker and collector and um he passed away suddenly and i really miss him i would love to just have one more dram with him very moving well on, on a lighter topic you travel a lot for writing and you visited no doubt countless distilleries over the years Are there still any spots out there that are on your bucket list to visit? So many. So, so many. I desperately want to visit um, New Zealand and Australia to check out their whiskey scenes uh, because they have some really vibrant uh, craft distilling going on down there. And what I've managed to taste from these countries has, you know, always been really good, really interesting 
And then beyond that, I, not whiskey related, I just really want to go to Thailand. Um, I, I love Thai food. I, I love the regional differences of Thai food. And I, I just would want to go and eat everything in sight. <laughs> Amazing. Actually, Thailand and especially Bangkok becoming a, such a great cocktail destination. So when you travel to Bangkok now, not only you can enjoy amazing food, but also some amazing cocktails as well. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah, that's even more reason to go there. Thank you for the tip. I will be asking you for recommendations when I'm planning my trip. Oh, we, yes, we know please. a few good places. Mm -hmm. We'll be ready. <laughs> so before we let you go, when our listeners are ready to pitch you with their compelling stories, now that they know what you're looking for, what is the best way for them to reach you? So they can email me. My email is sksbarton at gmail.com. Um, but if you don't remember that, my website's very easy to find. It's susannaskyverbarton.com. And there's a contact form right there on the homepage to, to get in touch. So yeah, I look forward to hearing from people. I'm sure you're going to get a lot of interest. And I've been bugging you about this for over the years. Michael and I both believe that you have a book in you. I am not going to give up on you. I'm going to continue to bug you and just continue to just remind you it's time for Susanna and a whiskey book. Yeah, you, you have so much to share, so many insights. Yes, I think you have so much knowledge in whiskey. And I think it's your duty to share it with audience globally. So that's my spiel, and I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, you have you planted the idea in my head years ago, and I promise I, I, I have not given it up. I know I have a book in me, too, and it's, it's a matter of uh, it's timing. It's, it's timing. You know, there's a lot of very good whiskey books out there, and I want to be able to write one that, uh, does something different from the, the the excellent books that exist. So we'll see. It'll it'll happen someday. But <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me on the podcast. This has been such a pleasure. No, thank you for joining us, and we can't wait to see you soon and share a dram or two in person. Definitely. That was a really spirited conversation. Now that you know what Susanna is looking for, please feel free to reach out to her and introduce yourself. And don't forget to mention that you heard her on our Hospitality Forward podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Also, for all media guests to date, you can find their information and episodes on our agency's website, www.hanaleecommunications.com. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.